Hi world, I'm Amy Redmond. I am the co-founder of a company called Human Wonder and I'm an innovation psychologist and a coach. I'll give you a little bit more detail about what an innovation psychologist is. So I really, my focus really is to help people thrive and to help teams kind of come together collaboratively to really realize their potential. Thank you, Amy, for joining us. Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, the podcast. Welcome, Amy. We are excited to have you here with us. It's great to have you. So I'm just going to give our listeners a little bit of background about how I know you. You and I trained together. Um, crikey, it's it's over a year ago now. Yeah. Um, on a short little course that we were doing around coaching. Um, and that's when I first came across you. And you know when you come across people and you think, Crikey, there's a lot to say there. There's a there's a story there, uh, and you get a sense of that with people. So I've been kind of hoping since then that I'd be able to talk you into doing a podcast. And actually, delightedly, it wasn't that difficult. To- <laughs> <laughs> you caught me on holiday, so I was in a really good mood. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was preparing to send the hitmen round and everything. I thought this is going <laughs> to be a hard sell, but no, no, you you jumped for it, so. I'm delighted to be able to do this. Oh, thank you, Ray. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot for me that's significant about you um, in terms of your learned experience and your lived experience. And we're going to get on to talk about uh, human wonder uh, a bit later on. But I really want to sort of start with, with you. So... It's fair to say that as well as an entrepreneur and and an innovation consultant, you are also a mum. And I'm curious just to understand what what that means for you being an entrepreneur mum, mum entrepreneur, however way you want to put it. Wow, I I love that question because... Most of us who are entrepreneurs or just in the world of work in some way are parents. And so it adds a really different dimension to the way that we work, doesn't it? So I know that we talk a lot about time and obviously I'm a single parent, so time is a real issue. But there are more um, sort of interesting dimensions, I think, to being a, a parent and also a business owner. So... And I want to actually reflect on it from quite a positive way. So I um, I see my parenting as actually adding a really positive dimension to the way that I work for, for a number of reasons. So first of all, I find that being a mum really keeps me focused. So it helps me prioritise. So when I'm working and my kids are home... I need to be working on something that matters because otherwise it's time away from my kids. So when I say it really helps me focus, I'm not actually naturally a particularly organized person. 
but I have very little time in my day. I have lots going on. And so I really have to keep organized. So parenting helps me do that. And then you know what? I was reflecting on this um, recently while I was on holiday. I, you know, my kids really inspire me in lots of in lots of different ways because kids have this unique perspective on the world, don't they? So like when I was on, on holiday recently, we were really lucky we went to Costa Rica and it was so beautiful. And my my daughter kept going on and on and on at me about how she wanted to go zip lining. And I and I found this terrifying zip lining adventure. I think the highest zip line was about 180 feet above ground level in the canopy of the rainforest. It's absolutely amazing, it's absolutely beautiful. And as we stood on this first platform, my daughter, who like campaigned tirelessly for me to book this adventure, um, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Mummy, I'm really, really scared of heights. <laughs> and I said, Oh, you know, I'm a little bit perplexed because you begged me to bring you here. Why would you beg me to bring you to something that scares you? And she said, No. Being scared isn't a bad thing. When I do things that scare me, it's much more exciting. <laughs> and it, and you know, it made me really reflect on my um, on my career because I think as we get older, fear really holds us back from doing things. And and her statement about liking things that scare her because it's exciting. Well, it's absolutely true, you know, and so for me as a founder and as an entrepreneur, it made me think actually, what am I not doing because it scares me? What am I not doing that's scary, but that could be really brilliant and really exciting? So just that one comment made me reflect a little a little differently on how I approach work. And then I suppose the final dimension of parents, because I feel this so much for all parents who are trying to, to work and, and move forward their careers. You know, it's also really hard and time's a real issue and, and it can be exhausting. And I think so it's about balancing out like the really great stuff, the stuff that keeps you moving forward and the stuff that inspires you. Again, it's actually just being kind to yourself and saying sometimes, I don't have time to do that or I just need a break or I need a holiday now or, you know, that no, that's too much. So I'm much better at saying no to things that just uh, maybe not um, at the heart of what I want to do or, or just not something that I want to prioritise over being a parent. That's really interesting for me because that piece you said about being a parent makes you value more the time that you're working because you have a sense that you need work to be meaningful because it's time away from your children. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because some of my coaching clients, one of the challenges they have about not necessarily feeling fulfilled at work is because there's that friction between, well, I'm here at work. I'm not at home with my family, but actually I don't feel I'm getting the most value out of what I'm doing. They can't necessarily articulate that immediately. It takes a bit of processing, but that seems to be a thing that comes out quite a lot that work time is valuable by the fact that it's not, it's time that you're not spending with your family, which is interesting because it's completely the opposite side of I go to work to earn a living to sustain my family, to I, I want to do something fulfilling with my time. And I want to make sure that if I'm not spending it with my family, that it's actually doing something for me more than just money. 
I don't know, we'll get onto it a bit later when we start talking about consultancy and coaching and stuff, but I sense a change that's happening. Mm. I think that's right. I think um, the pandemic caused people to pause and really reflect on how they were spending their time. So, I mean, it was almost—it's quite overwhelming for me because at the at the start of the pandemic, I was in a, you know, very challenging time of my life. I was going through a divorce. You know, we were having to sell our family home. I was working as the director at the time of an innovation agency. Um, and it was a role I loved in lots of ways, but it was very, very, you know, hard work and two small children and all of the stuff that comes with a divorce. And so this pause came at a time when I really needed it, actually, despite it being, you know, really awful and quite frightening for everybody. You know, the whole world was in sort of terror of this pandemic that was happening I needed that pause and I think that time to reflect on that sense of meaning what is it that I'm giving back to the world and needing to um, focus my efforts and my energy on something that really mattered to me and actually that's you know serendipitously that's how I ended up meeting you Ray because it you know made me focus more on the coaching element of what I did and that was what brought me great joy and how I felt that I could really help people um and so and so really that's why why we're here today it's about meaning it's about it's about doing something that's purpose-filled mm. yeah absolutely and I mean wasn't it such an amazing turning point in your life to, to come across me um, <laughs> it really was just a quick parenthesis because for me it was like oh that's so amazing that your your daughter just said that which actually is a is a coaching pillar in my modality we considered the gut i mean neuroscience considered that the gut has a lot of neural networks of its own so fear is at the front of our gut and courage is at the back and actually the body perceives fear and excitement in the same way depending how you choose to look um you know, their pure intuitive wisdom that it is in children and how they know all these things. I was like... They feel it, don't they? It's interesting. We don't allow ourselves to feel negative emotions enough because they're really telling, actually. And it's interesting what you say about um, excitement and fear being really closely aligned because one of the tricks that I tell uh, my coaching clients who are you know, maybe having to give presentations and they find it really scary or they find it really scary to speak up in meetings. There's this little trick that you can do that you're probably aware of what that's um that if you you allow yourself to feel fear in the run up to it because it helps you really focus your effort and retention and then you say out loud to yourself or silently to yourself just before you have to go and present you say I'm really excited and it tricks your brain into believing that you're not afraid, you're excited. And it's a totally different display then. So you still have that heart racing, but it's in a more positive kind of adrenaline focused way. And it really works. And I realized actually when I read this or heard this from a psychologist that I'd been doing it unconsciously for years that I would feel terribly scared before a presentation. But when someone came up to me and asked, how are you feeling? I'd always say, I'm really excited. And now I know why I was doing it. So I guess kids just know this stuff intuitively. It's amazing. It's quite important that, you know, we try and retain that in children for as long as we possibly can. 
because society will teach them all about the fear of failure ultimately in time. Mm. So the longer we can nurture that that ability to acknowledge one's own fears and anxieties yeah the the, the more rounded young people we we will nurture yeah absolutely mm. yeah i just wanted to add that it's great how science and neuroscience and epigenetics and all all the most new uh, search sciences at the moment are just or maybe not just are really picking up with what mm -hmm. children most know intuitively or ancient wisdom uh, used to say, but obviously using different wording, which um, oh, I lost my English. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. What I wanted to say is basically the wording and how it's put um, into context obviously speaks to different people and now it, it's yeah it's getting a, a bigger march yeah mm. absolutely well, there's something about there being what we intuitively knew for for hundreds of thousands of years being put into some sort of a codified social science language i guess because it's interesting you know of all the different coaching modalities i've come across they all use slightly different language, but more or less are pretty much talking about the same thing, just using different words. So, yeah, it's 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 maybe that we're just at a point where we're able to articulate what we've actually intuitively known for millennia. I think our society for centuries has suppressed people. You know, it's taught people that they have to be something that they're not. And... And, you know, we all are battling those demons, aren't we? We're all battling, you know, even, even as we get older and we get more knowledgeable about this stuff and we feel more confident, we all have these things that hold us back. And I suppose that's, you know, that's the beauty of coaching is that it focuses on this idea that we hold the answers within ourselves because we really do. Everybody does. Everybody knows what to do. It's just that we all have these little blocks that stop us from doing it. So it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's these things get so deeply ingrained in our psyche. It is, it is hard to overcome them, but it is possible. And I think you're absolutely right, Ray, about it being our duty as a society, actually, as parents, but also as a society and as a community to do what we can to make sure that children get to be themselves, mm. you know, forever, actually. I think hopefully we're raising this generation of children now that will never have to battle some of the demons that we've had to battle because they won't have to repress their identity and their authenticity. We're teaching them that it's okay to be themselves, whatever version of yourself that is. Mm. Yeah, because as a business owner, when I get an intake of people at a graduate level or whatever you know more often than not you can pretty much teach people anything if they if they've got an interest in it but what you can't work on is if somebody comes to you with all of these labels and learned behaviors and and attributes that actually don't belong to them they're like post-it notes that have just been stuck on us through our life of <laughs> you know you're this and you're that and but so if you could get a, a young person who was more psychologically comfortable with themselves, the, the teaching them the technical skills that you need for a particular role is, is relatively the easy bit. Yeah. And, and I do think, you know, if I was recruiting now 
graduates or whatever with a mind that maybe in 30 years they'll be the chief exec that you know they'll come through the, the the process i would much rather not have to like when they're in there at my age mid 40s <laughs> sorry mid to late 40s <laughs> all right but i'm still in my 40s that you know so in my 40s i went on a journey of self-awareness and learning about all of the crap the detritus that I gathered on myself mm-hmm. over the years, like rolling mm-hmm. around in dirty snow. And that takes time and effort and energy. And, and, and had I not had to do that in my 40s, I think I would have been a much better employee or colleague or whatever mm-hmm. in my 40s because I know myself. And so if we can nurture our children to know themselves first and foremost and be comfortable with themselves, everything else is teachable coachable yeah i i completely agree and i it's the role of parents and communities it's also the role of an employer and you know my uh, as you know i'm really passionate about innovation and one of the core elements of successful businesses and organizations is literally that it's allowing people to be themselves so it's recruiting diverse skills because as you know Ray you're founder of a business too when we're when we're trying to do something different and anything innovative by its nature is different when we're trying to do something different we need a whole diverse range of skills and viewpoints Mm. we don't there is a tendency or there certainly used to be a tendency to recruit around a certain model so we want people People like us because we feel more comfortable but actually bringing in people who are going to shake up the status quo who are going to challenge who are going to question who are going to bring their own flavor to whatever it is that you're trying to achieve that's that's a recipe for success this kind of melting pot of ideas and viewpoints and interests and you know personalities that's where the magic happens and Mm. so this is why you know the world will be a much better place if if the children if the people who are children now are allowed to just be their unique uniquely beautiful selves it will Mm. be you know this you know we see it in politics don't we and I don't want to get political but there are too many people in politics who think the same way who've been educated the same way who've been raised the same way and and it and it gets politics a bit stuck. We need some diversity in there. We need some, you know, we need people with unique viewpoints, and and it it works. And, and when we get into the deeper uh, elements of innovation, I do want to come back to this because for true innovation to happen, I believe there needs to be a management of the fear of failure. Because if you've got a fear of failure, and that's the dominant feeling. You're, you're never going to be truly free to innovate. But we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that when we dive into that a little bit deeper. Amy, you already have a PhD and was wondering about what was your educational journey until now and where is going to? Oh, thanks. So someone asked me this question the other day about why I, um, why I did the PhD that I did. So my PhD, it's interesting the point you made, Ray, my PhD was in the space of the psychology of innovation failure. So it looked at why is it that some people are able to 
suffer these great failures. And as we know, many, many entrepreneurs um, have failed in their path to success. Why is it that some are able to suffer these failures and, and not only bounce back, but bounce forward and go on to do amazing things while others fail and, and kind of give up? So that was the sort of crux of my um, PhD. But I guess it's interesting to explore because someone asked me this question and it was quite useful for me to, to sort of reflect on why it is that I ended up doing a PhD in innovation. So I think it was partly because I grew up in quite a big and quirky family. So my dad was one of 12 and um, and my mum was, and he's English and my mum's American. And we grew up in, um, we grew up in Wales. I grew up in Wales and um, my dad's an artist and most of his family are artists. And I suppose there was this, um, I was very lucky in my family because they're all kind of quite diverse thinkers. They're all a little bit quirky. They're all artists. Um, they all have, there was lots of talking. There was always a sense as a child that there were lots of quite loud conversations, quite vibrant conversations and this ability to really think differently. And so I saw this in my family and I didn't know that what I was seeing really was innovation. But like my brother was, you know, even as a child, he, he could take, um, you know how lots of children used to take apart cameras and things to their parents utter dismay he'd take them apart and rebuild them better and he's he's gone on to be an electronic engineer and he sort of thrives in that industry and he's an innovator you know for for a, a kind of global um electronics manufacturer and he and so I suppose I grew up seeing innovation actually not really knowing what it was called but I always had this sense that some people were different that some people were able to think differently. And, and so I think that's also why I went on to do, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology and I've always been sort of fascinated by what makes people different and what makes people happy. And, and then I did a master's in business psychology and occupational psychology. And always with this like idea that I wanted to understand more about innovation because it just seemed to me that it was what made the world go round. And then I had, um, I worked for a year in Japan. I spent a year teaching in Japan and met all these sort of fascinating uh, business owners who were sort of amazing at like developing ideas, but seemed to be held back when it came to actually presenting them because there's this culture of, of not speaking up or there was in those days, this was sort of 20 years ago, I'm getting really old. It's really sad. <laughs> Um, so I always had this fascination with it and, and I still do, you know, the, these entrepreneurs who I think quite often we, we look at entrepreneurs and we think, wow, they're so lucky, but, you know, we have to position ourselves for luck. You know, it very rarely happens as a thunderbolt from nowhere. You know, people who are successful have worked really hard for it. They've put themselves in a position that's allowed them to have these serendipitous moments. And, it, you know, innovation's amazing. It makes the world go round. It stops us from stagnating. It's also really, really hard. So I wanted to understand 
what is the psychology that underpins successful innovators? Why is it that some people are able to reach the stars and others find this journey, most people find this journey really, really hard. I find this journey of being founder really, really hard. You know, I have days where I feel hopeful and optimistic and excited and everything's brilliant. And I have days where I find myself in a sort of pit of despair. <laughs> and, you know, and I think most founders feel like that. So really my aim is to, you know, through my studying as for a PhD, and and now is to take people through this process and you're always going to find yourself in a pit of despair occasionally as an entrepreneur or as a founder but it's about our ability to climb out of that pit quite quickly and move forward and I'm sure Ray that you have lots of experience of this too because I know that you've you know you're a business founder too. Yeah and I always think that when you're in that pit of despair and, and you will be from time to time, one of the key things to, to being able to have a, a realistic perspective on that and come back from it is to have good people around you yeah. and, and a good diverse group of people so that you hear all of the opinions. Yeah. And also, yeah. I think sometimes for us, like with, with business owners, particularly in the Western world, where we're very much an individualistic um, society as opposed to collectivist. For a lot of business owners, there's this pressure that it's all on you. And if this goes wrong, it's all on you. And you, you don't get that so much in, in sort of Eastern, more collectivist societies, because there's more of a collective nature about it. Like we're all in it. We gen, Genuinely, we're all in it together kind of thing. So I think for, for entrepreneurs around innovation and just general day to day, is to first of all accept that no person is an island and there's going to be times when you're going to need to reach out to people either just to be an ear to listen or to be somebody to actually say to you you know what is that really true what what you've just said or what you're feeling is that is that realistic or is that some fantasy or some magical thinking because we're great at creating demons in our own heads so there is something around that and I, and I kind of want to I do want to come on to human wonder next because okay. I think there's a, I, I'm feeling a thread coming through here. So I want to ask about human wonder. And as much as I want to talk to you about what it is you do and why, why you do it, which is possibly the most important thing, particularly with innovation. And then maybe come back to some of the challenges that you faced in putting that together. Um, whether they were real or perceived um, <laughs> and what you learned through that process. So do you want to tell us a little bit about human wonder first, please, Amy? Yeah, sure. So, so human wonder um, is an organization that I founded with two um, wonderful coaches and therapists, um, ex-colleagues from an innovation agency that we worked at. Um, Human wonder, we have quite a clear purpose. We were here to help people thrive. So we are a team and a network of coaches and therapists and psychologists. And we work with individuals. So with individuals, it's it's on this basis of we meet you where you are. So and we help you get to the point where you're thriving. 
And so that might be coaching, it might be a combination of coaching and therapy, it might be a combination of coaching therapy. We work out a package that's right for the individual. Mm. And then when it comes to teams, it's we focus predominantly on, um, on a kind of innovation approach. So it's about helping teams identifying whatever challenges they're facing, working together to overcome them and, you know, really um, helping them to focus on achieving their biggest goals and ambitions as a collective. So making sure that they're kind of clear on their purpose and their vision and they're all working together towards these kinds of shared goals. I suppose it was we founded this on the basis that I think, you know, all innovation needs to be driven by a need. Mm. And so Human Wonder was very much a company that we set up because we really believed that it was needed so what we see particularly post-pandemic is this oh Ray you and I have talked about this it feels so sad that there are so many people that need help it's really difficult for them to access it you know sometimes they're ending up getting help from the wrong people or the wrong type of help or they can't afford to get you know really good quality coaching and therapy um so we want to you know ultimately run human wonder partly as a social enterprise which um which gives everybody access to the right kind of help that they need and it's really founded on this principle that me and my co-founders really believe in people so we really believe that everybody has this enormous potential everybody is capable of achieving their goals whatever those goals may be but we all have blocks we all have things that are holding us back I know that there are things that hold me back I know that there are things that hold you know the people that I um, am most inspired by they have blocks too and so coaching therapy is really about helping people realize their potential it's not about us holding your hand it's about us supporting you to do it yourself and it's you know there's such you know we talked about meaningful work to me this is really meaningful work because I see how it how much good it does and I you know there's nothing better for me than having a call with a client who started out feeling hopeless and held back and unable to overcome challenges to getting them to a point where they are doing it on themselves and they are they are achieving everything that they want to achieve you know that's that's it that's what I'm here for Mm, thank you the the social enterprise element of it I want to come back to but I just want to ask you about, so you you basically, to a certain extent, took a leap of faith <laughs> um, during the pandemic to, to start Human Wonder. What was that like, Amy? <laughs> well, it was partly helped by your expert coaching, actually, Ray. I had this... The fiver you know, in the post, Amy, for that. <laughs> Thank you. It, it was... Um, you know, it was a really difficult decision. I am a single mum. And so I am responsible for keeping food on my children's table. And I had a great, stable job that was, you know, we were busy during the pandemic. Um, It was, you know, actually, I, I coaching helped me make this decision, because 
I, I think it was you that asked me to look at this decision uh, from the perspective of two different paths. So just imagine those in your head. Imagine, you know, one path where you stay in your role and one path where you set up this, you know, this dream, this dream agency that you've been cooking up in your heads for decades. Um, and, you know, the path where I stayed in my role was safe and it was like a highway and there were no obstacles on it. And it was, you know, it was just long and straight. And, you know, I there was no particular horizon. I was just driving along and it was just easy. And, you know, I had an automatic car. And then when I looked at this other path, this path where I set up Human Wonder, I didn't even know that that's what it was going to be called then. It was windy and potholed and beautiful. And there were people along the way that I hadn't met yet and smiling faces and it was exciting and it was scary and the car was going to break down a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and for some people, they'd look at those two parts and think, well, I want the straight road. But, you know, that's never been me. So my I've never wanted an easy life. I've never wanted to do the easy thing. I've always wanted to do the thing that opens up opportunities, that challenges me, that helps me to learn new things, that meeting people. Oh, God, after the pandemic, just desperate to do something that brought me into contact with lots of people because I really missed people. I come from a really big family and it was all, you know, awful not seeing people as it was, you know, lots of people felt lonely, didn't they? Mm. So that's, so that's really, you know, it was, I suppose to anyone that's thinking about whether they change roles. And I know that lots of people are, you know, it's, it's scary, but if you're really clear on why you're doing it, then you should give it a go. I mean, I think there's this, um, I think often people think entrepreneurs kind of go all in and that's not what I did. So, so the reality is actually that most entrepreneurs and founders have some sidelines. So I didn't quit my job and have not, you know, I still actually consult for my old agency and I do have, you know, other consultancy work to, you know, certainly in the early days. And, you know, and then you suddenly find yourself even busier because now you've got <laughs> multiple roles. But if it's worth it, you get it done. And, mm. you know, gradually, you know, I was able to stop doing lots of that consultancy work as human one stuff picked up. And so, you know, I've never looked back, actually. And for me, it's it's the Sunday test. It's how do you feel on Sunday night? You know, are you gutted that the weekend's over? Or are you actually quite excited to get up on Monday morning? And these days, I quite often do bits and pieces of work on the weekends because I want to, because mm. it's stuff that I enjoy. Mm. So I think that's the test, isn't it? That's the acid test. And I'm interested the why of human wonder which you you touched upon and the the social enterprise part and i'm cheating a little bit because we have talked about this previously <laughs> is is very important to you and mm -hmm. so perhaps for you it might have been a case of it was the right thing to do because it, it aligned with your purpose and is that real and i'm i'm asking without well i've got an opinion but i'm not i'm not going to share it we talk a lot about purpose 
talk a lot about why and, and what your why is, why, why you want to do something. And we talk about values and beliefs and identity and all that sort of thing. Accepting that on the flip side of that, as you've alluded to, you know, there's bills to pay, there's things to be done. And maybe there's listeners out there who don't have, don't necessarily feel that they've got the resources available to be able to take a leap, even if it's a calculated leap. I mean, are we, are we inclined to kind of fantasize about, you know, there's a, you hear the celestial music and, you know, you get this great idea and a beam of light comes down and lights you up and, you, you know, your, your path is cast or is it a lot more practicality to it than that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Am I making any sense at all? You are making sense. I think practicality matters. You know, you have to feed your family and you have, you know, you're not going to thrive in a new role if you're just really, really worried about how you pay your mortgage. You know, that you have to think about these things practically. So, but there's a way of doing both. I think that's my point. And I don't know if you've read a book called Originals um, by Adam Grant. It's a brilliant book, but he talks about this idea that most people think that um, entrepreneurs and founders are massive risk takers. You know, I learned this during my PhD, that the, the reality is that they they take some calculated risks, but actually they're relatively risk averse quite often. So when it comes to founding a business, you know, it's it's probably not a brilliant idea to to just put in all your savings and just go for it because, you know, a large proportion of enterprises fail. Mm. Um, so I think it's just about understanding your risk tolerance and, and doing something that you feel comfortable doing, something that's not going to give you sleepless nights because you don't want to jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, do you? You want to, you know, if you're going to do this, it has to feel good. And so you need to, you know, so for example, perhaps before you leave your job, if you're thinking about doing something similar to me and going out on your own, you know, before you leave your job, start, you know, don't burn your bridges in your old job, for example, you know, find out if you can go to part time. That's what I did. First of all, I went down to four days a week and then three days a week and then, you know, maintained a really good relationship where I still do you know, consult with them and had other consultancy work lined up. So, you know, you can do it in stages. I think like a relatively measured stage approach is quite a good idea. I think the other side of that is what you often hear is people who get made redundant and it's really incredibly sad and for them and they're horrified or, you know, for whatever reason, they lose their job quite suddenly. And that's quite different because then the choice is made for you. So at that point, you know, you have to make a change. And, and you do hear these success stories quite often, don't you, where people have been forced out of a role and it's been the best thing that ever happened to them because it's, you know, been the impetus for them to do something quite different with their lives, something quite different that has. But you asked about purpose. I, I think it really matters so it has to be the starting point of an innovation and quite often and this is another reason why you need some financial security in order to really live your purpose because otherwise your work becomes about making money mm. 
And when all we're doing is focusing on money and we're not focusing on doing something good, delivering something that someone needs, you know, delighting our customer base, then it's not going to be sustainable in the long term. It's very unlikely that it's good. you're going to come up with a business proposition that's sustainable for the long term. Mm. We, we end up making a commodity of ourselves. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And taking on work that you don't really want. I mean, I have to admit, I am quite selective these days. So, you know, just in terms of the projects that I take on, I, I know that I'll do my best for others when I'm doing work that I think is the right work. Mm. I want to touch briefly on, and this comes back to the social enterprise piece, Amy. We talked when, when we when we met previously, we talked about you know, people actually being able to afford or have access to the right kind of intervention, be it coaching or psychotherapy or counseling or or whatever it might be. And we won't name the particular platform, but we, we talked about a particular platform where a lot of people are on there and you can see in their requests that actually they've got some quite deep needs, but they're asking for a life coach or they're asking for a, a business coach. Uh, and actually, you know, it's potentially quite harmful if somebody ends up with the wrong intervention, so to yeah. speak. Yeah. So the social enterprise part of your organization is to be able to give people a broad breadth of affordable contact. Is that is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's still in, because our business is still in its early days, that that's still in its sort of development phase. But that's really our aim is that we we want to be able to offer um, affordable coaching and therapy to people who need it. When I think about the hardest times in my life, so going through divorce and, you know, all of those sorts of things, I've been really lucky because I've always had a network of friends and family who've been there for me mm. to talk to, to offer advice, to offer help. And that has got me through. And it hasn't only got me through, but it's taught me so much and I've learned from it. And I'm definitely more resilient as, as a result. But when I think about those really dark, the darkest days of my life, I think probably couldn't have done it without that network I mean I would have done it but it would have been a lot harder and it might have scarred me a little bit Mm. and so I suppose I just want that for everybody I want everybody to have someone that they can talk to when they need it most Mm. you know I want everybody that's got a brilliant idea but is currently unable to get it off the ground I want them to be able to have a coach that can really help them take it forward because I know that there's all this across the world, there's all this latent potential, you know, everybody can do it, but we all need a little bit of help and support to get there. Mm. And some of the challenges that we face as a species and as a planet can only be solved with innovation. Yes. Um, If we, think that we can keep doing the same thing or adjust the same thing slightly <laughs> yeah they're like madness I guess <laughs> so sorry just picking up on that point about iteration you know I've worked with some teams who 
have already done some brilliant things. So I worked recently with a, a company that has developed some quite innovative technology and they've they've been successful. So, but even successful teams, you know, they brought me in because they'd reached their plateau. They just didn't seem to be able to do the next thing. Mm. And it took, you know, actually going back to your point about purpose, one of their issues that we discovered through um, team coaching was that they weren't all aligned on, on why they were there. So they were all actually trying to develop slightly different things and they all actually had slightly different goals, a team of about 20 people. Mm. And so, so they were already, you know, doing quite well, but they had big ambitions that they weren't able to meet. So it's, sometimes it's about, when we talk about coaching and therapy, as you know, Ray, sometimes it's about fine tuning, you know. So we, we like, at Human Wonder, we like to see it as, you know, people are either um, surviving, so they're just doing the day-to-day things that they have to do to survive. They're striving, so they're, they're, they've got some goals, but they're not quite there yet, or they're thriving and this is where you're really firing and all cylinders so our, our aim is wherever you are whether you're whether you're surviving whether you're striving or whether you're thriving we help you to get to that point of thriving so you know lots of teams who are striving have big goals and have already achieved some stuff but they're just not able yet to move to the next level and just mm. requires a little sometimes success breeds success and sometimes it breeds um it's almost this sense of stagnation because it's exhausting getting to that first point of success isn't it yeah yeah there there is something about that there's so much energy expended for that initial success yeah and maybe there's not enough time given to have a pit stop with that you know consolidate the position understand what's required for the next step and be ready to go again yeah just sometimes having that space because again in 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 industry and in business there's often this thing of if you're not continually moving forward you're going backwards and that's not necessarily true because it's about the value of the going forward as opposed to the pure momentum yeah and that's why you find a lot of organizations when you start looking at what exists they talk about all these great things they're doing but actually they're spinning their wheels a lot of the time. There's a lot of engine being used there to not travel particularly far. And like you said, sometimes it can just be the slightest of tweaks. It's not yeah. all about big, massive interventions. Yeah, it's it quite often. And for individuals and for teams, you know, quite often it's, you know, I think you you must have this all the time with your coach. So you just reach that aha moment we find this in team coaching and individual coaching that there's just one sentence someone says and you suddenly think that's it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and then you yeah. explore that a little bit more and then everyone goes, that's it. That's what's holding us back. This is where, this is the block. Yeah. I mean, often there are multiple blocks. It's amazing how we all lack self-awareness, don't we? Mm. You know, we all have this tendency to bury what's difficult to address. Even, you know, as a psychologist, I know I do it. I know that I um, I don't always want to look at what's hard to look at. And it's that very thing that's holding me back. Mm, yeah. I love the power of team and group work. And that's why I actually like group supervision as well, because 
I've really learned to appreciate that in the last 12 months where you just, you tell a story and, and what people do is they feed back their phenomenological response. And quite often, startlingly for me, although I am mm. starting to get a little bit more used to it, people will say stuff and I'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, that actually, that pretty much nails it. You know, it's about having people around you again that, that can, they can fill in your blind spots and drag you out of that, the doldrums of, oh, you know, it's all on me. I need to figure this out, but I can't see the wood for the trees. And somebody will come in and go, hey, what about? That's so simple. It's about breaking habits, isn't it? So I think especially since the pandemic, we, many of us, you know, have become much more habitual animals. So we we do the same thing every day. And, and in lots of ways, it's really nice because we can be at home and we can, you know, make our breakfast and not rush around and everything feels much more relaxed. But we've also, in doing that, we risk getting into these cycles of comfort. And to really push the boundaries of what we do, we need a little bit of discomfort. We And we need difference, you know, we need... We need newness in our day. We need to meet new people and speak to new people and hear different perspectives. And we're very unlikely to do that in our four walls. And I do get, you know, obviously virtual calls like this, obviously, you know, we're talking to each other and it's lovely, but it's often those coffee, those chats over coffee that are the magic that really go, oh, okay. Mm. You know, it because where people feel more relaxed. Don't you find that on virtual calls these days, you just go straight into it, don't you? There's very little um because you have an agenda quite often. You have an hour, you have 45 minutes, and you've got something that you need to get done. And so you might say, oh hi, how was your weekend? But you just get straight into the business of the day mm. without necessarily the small talk. And it's often that small talk where certainly when you talk to entrepreneurs, you know, successful entrepreneurs, the seed of an idea has often come from a random conversation with someone on a plane or, you know, you know, someone that they met in a bar or, you know, maybe even not the idea, but the the person that free then frees up, you know, whatever they're stuck with. They meet some random encounter on a train or and I spent I mentioned earlier the sort of the science of luck. And it's that, isn't it? It's about, you know, particularly when it comes to people putting yourself in a situation where you can have a lucky encounter, but first you have to talk to them. Yeah. And and being curious, I, I'm recalling social media piece that you released about that, you know, the random conversations in a bar and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it is very much that. Uh, I think as well with the, just on the virtual thing, because of our relationship with television, I think there's a certain subconscious performance that goes on with the virtual world where, you know, we feel like we're performing because we're on TV. And I'm wondering... I'm wondering what's going to happen with that in the longer term. But hopefully we won't need the virtual world so much going forward. We become slightly detached, don't we, on a virtual call? I mean, you know, if I'm honest, you know, it has happened never in a one-on-one session or anything like that, but in a team, you know, in an internal team call where I've noticed a message come in on my phone and I've read it. You know, it's a small act, but I would never do that in a physical meeting. Mm. 
Mm. I would never sort of quickly look at a message on my phone, you know, and it's this and it demonstrates this slight, you know, one of the things that I know I'm good at is listening and focusing and giving people, you know, my full attention. And it's definitely harder when you're on a virtual call. It, it is. So, you know, when when we talk about virtual working and I know that it has changed. I mean, I've actually been lucky, even in my first job as an occupational psychologist when I was, you know, 20 years ago, they had a mostly sort of home working set up at a time that people didn't really do that. And I can remember feeling really lucky. So I, but, and we had an office that I went into maybe twice a week. And so I've always had, you know, kind of hybrid working approach. Mm, mm. But and so I always used to feel sorry for people that had to be in the office because I always think, you know, there is a way of, you know, for most people, unless you're a doctor or a nurse or someone that has to be patient or customer facing. But for, you know, for most people, there is an option, I think, for more hybrid approach. But I think we all need to be really honest with ourselves about what we need. So, you know, actually, can you can you do your best meaningful work? exclusively virtually you know honestly can you are you honestly going to be happiest if you're just in front of a screen all day every day and I think for most people the answer is probably no Mm. so you know actually going into the office twice a week I have a little office that I go to that's um, just in my local town Um, and and I don't always need to be there but I go there two or three times a week just because it's it's a different way of working and I always feel better Mm. when I've had a day in the office I feel more inspired I feel more motivated I usually have a chat with people or meet someone there and it's just nicer Mm. and there's something about that subconscious contamination of the home space yeah during the home working from home yeah. And uh, it was something that I particularly struggled with. Um, and I hadn't appreciated how much I valued my commute because it was time for me to not have to take phone calls, not have to read emails. I could just have time for myself, whether it was reading a book or listening to a podcast or whatever. And then when COVID happened, that wasn't available anymore. And I very quickly realized that I missed it incredibly, incredibly, because I had no there was there was no boundaries between work and home i was i was literally working in my living room and my commute was walking from my living room to my bedroom <laughs> and and my bedroom started to become because i wanted to eat in a different space to where i was working my bedroom became my dining room and all of a sudden my relationship with my bedroom changed and i was struggling to sleep <laughs> yeah it's fascinating isn't yeah. it so, yeah. so I, I ended up physically taking a little office just so that I had a place that I could walk into and walk out of that mm. closed work behind me. And, and psychologically, that was very important. Yeah, yeah. Amy, you produce and publish content. And what do you actually do? What does it mean to you? And we already touched on the social media a little bit, but maybe we can uh, yeah, go a little bit deeper on that. Okay. Oh, social media. It's interesting. I feel my pulse rising when (laughs) you ask me a question about social media. So social media is wonderful, isn't it? Because it's, it's opened up opportunities for everybody. So now everybody 
can potentially be a founder and an entrepreneur because they have access to all the whole world full of people who might be interested in what they do. It's also absolutely terrifying. I mean, social media is terrifying. I I do now do quite a lot on social media because I know that it's important and and I still find it absolutely terrifying. So <laughs> it's I think it's about maybe it's the perfectionist in me, but I think it's about getting underneath this realization that you can't always produce something that everyone's going to love 100% of the time. And so and and it links to what you were talking about about fear ray that you know I suppose I've had to address some of my demons over that, that I I want to produce only content that I know everyone's going to love and that's absolutely impossible. So not everyone is always going to love your stuff. You know, 30% of people are going to be either ambivalent or they're going to hate it and you just have to do it anyway. So Ray's given me some good advice on this, that just be yourself you know, stay authentic, do what you believe is right, and just keep doing that. And mm. it's really as simple as that. So, and just to add to that, Amy, as well, let's be realistic about the negative feedback that the reality is that 99.99% of negative feedback actually tells you more about the person providing the feedback than it does about the content. That's yeah. so often people give feedback on stuff that we put out there and it's 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 not ours. It's not our thing to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting beyond that, like we're not because we're a social animal, any form of rejection we take very, very personally and deeply. And social media really plays into that. The yeah. whole piece around acceptance and rejection and but the, the truth of it is, if we look at feedback, negative feedback, and I mean, I don't mean constructive feedback. I mean, deliberately negative haters. Um, you, you read it and, and so often you can see this, this isn't this isn't anything to do with me. This isn't about me. <laughs> I think you can see that when you've you've reached this point of self-awareness, haven't you? So you've done a lot of work on. You know, you said earlier, it was when we were talking earlier that you've done a lot of work over the last few years. And and I guess that's a really interesting point, actually, that if you so I still find even now that if I have 100 really nice comments and one that's not nice, I focus all my energy on the one that's not nice. And that one comment out of 100 could potentially make me change what I do next time to try and please that one person rather than trying to keep the other hundreds happy. Mm. And so I know that that's wrong. Um, but it's something about me, I suppose, that I just that I still need to address. Mm. It's something we have to learn. When I talked to Sheila Walsh uh, on a previous podcast, you know, she was talking about the process of doing a PhD and, and how you need to learn how to take feedback. Yeah. And you also need to learn the different types of feedback that you're receiving and what 
what no matter how much you wreck your head you'll never be able to adjust because it's got nothing to do with you it's about the other person (laughs) so it's a skill it's a skill it is a skill and we're we're not taught it in school and there is something around like going back to the original comment about your daughter saying that she was scared being able to accept one's own fallibility and possibility that you know we're not always going to please everybody but that shouldn't stop us doing what we love doing it is really the message of if we can nurture that in our young people they'll be less affected by the negativity of social media in time and actually we we may change the social aspect of social media where it becomes taboo to be a troll because social media is like the sort of place where people will say stuff that they wouldn't dare say in the street. Yeah. Dare. And and maybe there's something around that, that we need to look at and how we make it, we call it out and we say, Hey, that's not right. You know, it all links into this idea of fear of failure, doesn't it? That you've touched on that, you know, we're so preconditioned to fear failure. You know, our, our ancestors risked being punished or humiliated if they failed, if they were made bankrupt, you know, that you could get put in this in the stocks for it. Mm-hmm. And these kinds of this, this fear of failure is has stayed deeply rooted in our psyche. I have an actual PhD in failure, in innovation failure. And I still find it really hard to fail, despite knowing that most people who fail in the pursuit of doing something really good, most of them, if they can learn from it, if they can really, you know, think about why it went wrong, if they can, you know, hold on to the belief that they can do it better next time, they will go on to be successful in part as a result of that failure. You know, I'm not talking about little mistakes. Sometimes when I talk about failure, people think I'm advocating mistakes. I'm not, you know, we should always avoid making you know, annoying mistakes, but failure in the pursuit of innovation is not unexpected because by its nature, we're, we're treading into uncharted territory. We don't know what to do. We don't know mm. exactly what to do. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Mm. And so, yeah. And yet, you know, even knowing that it's still, it's still really hard. And, uh, but I think, you know, as time goes by, I'm I'm overcoming that fear and it certainly hasn't stopped me. I'm just really aware of it. And sometimes I now think if I'm really um, feeling quite fearful about a particular post, I think well, maybe it's the right thing to do. You know, sometimes I want to do something that's a little bit more controversial, but I'm still not very good at that yet. Those posts tend to go in my queued folder. Well, the, the <laughs> things that we're most afraid of are the things that we care about the most. Yeah, exactly. So on, on the whole piece about social media, where can people access you, Amy? Ah, so, well, they can look at our website, which is at human-wonder.com. Um, I go by the hashtag of Dr. Amy Redmond on uh, on Twitter and on Instagram and um, and yeah, and swing by and find me on LinkedIn. You know, I love to connect with people as we've talked about. 
I like, I, you know, I really embrace diversity in all its forms of viewpoints and skills. So anyone, you know, you don't have to be interested in coaching or psychology. I would love to connect with people who just, you know, are doing interesting stuff out there in the world. And, you know, I really believe in the power of connection. And that's that's what I'm here for. And we will put links to all of your social media and we'll put the website URL in the show notes as well so that people can find you easily. Thanks. Um, and it just remains for me to say, Amy, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, Ray and Oana, for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you, Amy. It was great getting to know you. And thank you for sharing your lovely story and wisdom with us. Thank you. They didn't set limits. Are you a follower or a visionary? Can you handle the load that you were meant to carry? Because we're on a mission. Listen, it's beyond description. We don't want to fit in if we're living in a contradiction. We need a brand of passion.